Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Today on State of the World, dire conditions for civilians in Gaza and the uncertain future of humanitarian aid. Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR. We bring you the day's most vital international stories up close where they're happening. It's Thursday, February 15th. I'm Greg Dixon. In a few minutes, we'll hear the story of an unlikely friendship between a Gaza woman in grief and the Irish graffiti artist who painted her. But first, we'll go to southern Gaza. Because of the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, more than a million Palestinians are living in makeshift tent cities there. And most of them depend in one way or another on humanitarian aid and services provided by a single UN agency. United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA. That agency's ability to operate is now uncertain. The U.S. and at least eight other countries cut millions of dollars in funding for the organization after Israel accused 12 UNRWA employees of helping to carry out the October 7th attacks. Israel also claims that dozens of other UNRWA workers were Hamas or Islamic Jihad operatives. To understand what the cuts will mean for UNRWA, we're going to hear from Scott Anderson. He's deputy director of UNRWA Affairs in Gaza. He's in Rafah, in southern Gaza, and he spoke to NPR's Michelle Martin. So you are speaking to us from Rafah, which has become a sprawling tent city in southern Gaza, as we said. And as I think many people know, hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians are sheltering there right now. Could you just describe what the conditions are like? Uh, The conditions are very dire for most people. Um, before the conflict started or before October 7th uh, in Rafah, there were about 280,000 people. And as you said, now there's well over a million people uh, living in a, in a very small area. And it's roughly, you know, four or five times the, the population. So, you know, most days people are just trying to meet their basic necessities, find food, find a toilet, find water, try to stay warm because it is winter here in Gaza. So it's, it's a very difficult situation for most people. Is there any, say, health infrastructure at this point? Like if people are injured, and we understand that, you know, many people continue to be injured, is there any apparatus to treat them? Uh, it's very limited at the moment, unfortunately. So there are three hospitals that are still somewhat functioning um, south of Wadi Gaza. That's Al-Aqsa, which is in the middle area, European Hospital, and Nasser Hospital. Um, and unfortunately, this morning we heard news that there is a large conflict happening in and around Nasser Hospital, which puts the patients that are currently there in jeopardy, but also removes that as an option for people to receive treatment. And even with those three hospitals, the capacity that they're operating in is quite limited. Um, there is some primary health care available, mostly provided by UNRWA and the health centers that we're still operating, uh, which is unfortunately six out of the normal 22 um, but yes, every system that you can think of has been strained to the limits by the large number of IDPs, be it the health system, you know, the food system, sewage, water. It's taking care of a large number of people that it was never meant to serve. One of the reasons I asked about this is that Israel has saying it plans to launch an offensive in, in Rafah, which could be imminent. How are you preparing for that? 
Well, I don't think there's really any way to prepare for that. You know, there, there would need to be an evacuation plan of some sort for all the people that are here so the innocent civilians could be removed to somewhere uh, more safer than it would be during an operation. Um, you know, I'm standing in my office. I look out the window. All you see are tents and people. So I don't know how you could conduct an operation uh, that would not disproportionately impact uh, innocent civilians in such a small, constrained area. Our other concern is that in the southern part of Gaza, near Rafa, the only uh, crossing for humanitarian aid to enter, which is Karim Shalom, is all the way in the south. How, how would an operation in Rafa impact our ability to continue to bring in humanitarian aid? And as I think you mentioned before, the bulk of the population, if not all, is dependent on the humanitarian community, including UNRWA, to receive food and water to meet their daily basic necessities. Now, you know, I have to ask you about the underlying, you know, allegation here, which is behind what we are told is a potential stop in funding from several countries that Israel claims that a dozen UNRWA members were actually involved in the October 7th attack, you know, not to mention that they claim that nearly 100 others or, or so are Hamas and Islamic Jihad operatives. How, how does your agency respond to those, to those allegations? Well, first of all, we take them very seriously, and I hope that it, that it is untrue. But the UN's Office of Internal Oversight has launched an investigation, um, and the, the investigators are active. I was interviewed previously last week with them. Obviously, I can't you know, convey any of the details, and we're just going to have to wait for the outcome of that investigation. But on a larger scale, you know, if any of these 12 people were involved, it's a betrayal of the organization and of the values that we stand for. Um, you know, those, the events that happened on October 7th were horrific and have been condemned, and I condemn them again in terms of what happened to the innocent civilians in Israel. But unfortunately, now we have to wait for the investigation to run its course. Uh, but as I said, it is a betrayal, and unfortunately, you know, throughout history, We've seen people who put their own individual needs above organizations, and that's even happened in the U.S. with people like um, Alder James and Robert Hansen, who betrayed their country for, you know, for individual gain. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the organization itself is bad, but it does mean that some of the people that are part of the organization are bad and, as I said, have betrayed what we stand for. And as I mentioned, these accusations have resulted in a funding stop, at least a threatened funding stop from several countries. Have you experienced the, the consequences of that yet? I mean, have you, do, you, do you feel that where you are? I mean, our staff certainly feel it, yes. You know, when this all became news to everyone um, and they saw that I think it's 16 countries now have suspended future funding to UNRWA and to Gaza in particular, um, you know, the staff understand what that means in terms of our ability to respond to the humanitarian crisis that's ongoing. And there is a lot of people that are very nervous about the, what this means for the future of Gaza, for the future of UNRWA, and, you know, the future of any self-determination for the, for, for the Palestinian people. But, I mean, has it, has it already taken effect, though? Um, so it was announced that future funding would be suspended. So we will pay salaries in February for all our operations, which are in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, West Bank, and Gaza. Uh, but without a change in funding um, and how we receive funding in March, we will not be able to pay salaries. So all the schools that are operated um, in, in the other fields, because we're not doing education now, um, would stop. Uh, visits to the health centers would stop, and the impact would be quite significant as I said, in countries like Jordan and Lebanon and Syria.
And so for, before we let you go, just so I understand, you're saying if this funding stop continues, you're saying that operations in Gaza will essentially cease at the end of March. Is that what I'm understanding you to say? Under operations, yes. Hmm. We will run into a wall at the end of March, early April. I mean, it, you know, just, it depends a little bit on how much things cost and when we pay and all that. But yes, for our staff and, and everybody that's leading our part of the response, end of March, early April, we will see a significant change in our ability to implement our operations. Scott Anderson is the Deputy Director of UNRWA Affairs in Gaza. Mr. Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. Now, a story about art, war, and an unexpected friendship. It's a friendship between women on opposite sides of an Instagram feed. Here's NPR's Lauren Freyer in Dublin, Ireland. Emmeline Blake is a teacher, activist, and artist in Dublin. She paints street murals. Yeah, usually I paint, like, human rights issues, um, equality issues. Her work includes 50-foot portraits of George Floyd, the singer Lizzo, and art in support of same-sex marriage, COVID-19 masks, and World Down Syndrome Day. Since October 7th, though, Emma has focused on the Gaza war. Um, I painted this. It looks like a child with a yarmulke on. Yeah, all any child wants is safety. To be she shows me a mural she painted along a busy Dublin street of Israeli and Palestinian children stacking alphabet blocks that spell out peace, please. And another, probably her most famous mural, of a woman cradling the body of a child wrapped in a Palestinian flag. A lot of people think that it's... Um, A mother holding her child. uh, Emma painted it in early November, inspired by a photo she saw in the news. It's a photo you might recognize, a woman bent over a child's body. It's become an iconic image of Gaza's grief. And Emma's mural has become a tourist attraction in Dublin. A few days after painting it, Emma opened Instagram and saw a direct message. This is my photo, and you painted my sweet niece, Massa. That's Samia El-Atrash, the woman in the news photo that Emma painted. She's still alive, still in Gaza, and says it was the body of her niece that she was holding in that photo. My niece, uh, Massa, she's uh, two years. Uh, Massa, she's my uh, heart. 
She's a sweet baby. Masa was killed in an Israeli airstrike on her home in Rafah, Gaza, on October 21st, along with her sister, her father, and her mother, who was Samia's sister. They were Samia's world. They were everything that Samia has. She's not Emma married. recalls how Samia reached out to her that day, exactly. wanting to tell her about Masa, the child she was holding in that photo. And she wanted to tell her that Masa had a four-year-old sister named Lena, who was killed alongside her. They're not numbers. They're real people who had beautiful dreams and a beautiful home, Samia told us in a phone interview from Rafa, where she's taken refuge with her brother and grandmother, her only relatives who are still alive. After that initial message, Emma bought Samia credit for her cell phone so that they could stay in touch. And they exchange messages daily now. She's a beautiful person. She's helped me. Yeah, I mean, like, she sends me messages all the time saying thanks, but, like, I don't need a thanks. Like, I can't even begin to comprehend what she's going through. And the two women have started fundraising for Gaza together. They're selling prints of Emma's mural and donating the proceeds to UNRWA, the UN's Palestinian Relief Agency. And Emma has painted a new mural now. I told Samia that I wanted to paint Massa as she should be remembered and not as the image that the whole world has seen of her. It's a two-story painting of a giggling toddler on a wall of pink, Massa's favorite color. And she's clever, so, so clever, sweet baby, and she's so clever. Emma has also written a poem to go with this new mural. It's called Second Time Painting You, and it's just about all of the things that I didn't know the first time I painted Massa. And so in Dublin rush hour, as cars whiz past this mural, Emma reads aloud her poem about Massa. Second Time Painting You. That cheeky smile. I sketch it now, one finger to your lips. You look off to the side... Smiling at someone, something that makes you feel happy, makes you feel safe. I didn't know this about you when I painted you before. Didn't see it. Didn't see your smile. Didn't see the feather in your hair. Didn't see I will never forget my niece. Masa lives on in her aunt Samia's memory and on a two-story cinder block wall on the side of a tattoo parlor in Dublin. She looks like any other laughing little girl. And only if passersby scan a QR code that Emma has painted in the corner will they learn about a little girl in Gaza named Massa. It's NPR's Lauren Freyer in Dublin. And that's the state of the world from NPR. For more coverage of all sides of this conflict, go to npr.org slash updates. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. With NPR Plus, you get bonus content from behind the scenes of your favorite shows, like the NPR Politics Podcast. A friend of mine who worked at the Associated Press came in to the courtroom and said, Step to it. Michael Cohen has flipped on Trump. And with NPR Plus, you'll be supporting public media. Learn more at plus.npr.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Paycom. 
With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll and can find and fix errors before submission in the Paycom app. Betty automates the entire payroll process and alerts employees when it is time to review and approve their paycheck, giving them instant visibility into their pay and how it is calculated. Accessible from any device at any time with one login and password. Information about Betty is at paycom.com slash NPR.